0: But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through this word. Good morning, everybody. How is everyone doing this morning? morning. Awesome. Yeah, you guys are alive, awake. I love it. Uh, Hey, just as we dive in here this morning, we're in uh, week two of a series that we're calling Kingdom Culture, where throughout the summer, we're tracking through the parables of Jesus. One of his most common methods of teaching was through some really, really brilliant stories. Uh, that we get to dive into and really look at how the rubber hits the road for what Jesus taught for our lives here today. And so, if you weren't with us last week, or even if you were, I just want to remind you that uh, with this series, we have a companion devotional that we are working through. And so, this is really cool because it's it's one devotional a week that just digs a little bit deeper into each of the messages and kind of takes it from a a different angle than what we cover here on Sundays— And so these are free, they're printed out in the lobby. Feel free to take one or a couple with you. And uh, if you're joining us online, they're also available for free to download at newlifewayland.org slash summer. So we'd love to have you track with us in this series in in that way. And so the other day I walked into uh, my girl's room and they were having a bit of an argument, a bit of a fight with each other. And my girls are five years old and seven years old and kids that age never fight, right? Now, they were in a little bit of an argument with each other, and the argument went something like this. I'm the most beautiful. You're the second most beautiful. <laughs> and then the other one would say, I'm the most beautiful. You're the second most beautiful. Kind of went back and forth. I'm the most beautiful. No, you're the second most beautiful. And this like back and forth between them. And I walked in like any dad would do, and I said, y'all be quiet. Your mother's the most beautiful. <laughs> now, that's not... Don't clap, because I wish I would have said that. That's not what I said. What I said was, you know who the most beautiful is? It's the one who treats the other with the most kindness and who loves the other one the best. And that's kind of where I went. My wife told me in first service she liked the first answer uh, better. Probably would have been the right answer. But hey, that's not a totally bad dad thing to say, right? The, The one who's the most beautiful is the one who loves the other one the most. And so they both sat there after I said this for a moment. And they looked at each other, and a brand new fight broke out. <laughs> you're the most beautiful. I'm the second most beautiful. No, you're the most beautiful. I'm the second. And like this new fight, and I just threw up my hands. I'm like, guys, you guys are hopeless, and I walked away. In that moment, though, I'm reminded that we are not always good at loving each other, are we? I mean, that's not really something we need to think about much to be convinced of. Sometimes Our love for one another is self-serving. Sometimes it has hidden motives. Our love can be motivated by guilt. It can be motivated by obligation. Our lack of love can stem from apathy or laziness. And the question I want to ask us here this morning, it's a really important one, is what if admitting we don't love well is actually the first step to learning how to love well? What if admitting that we are not naturally good at loving other people is the first step in not only loving well, but receiving real, perfect love? Today, we're looking at a really, really famous story from Jesus, and if you've grown up in the church, and even if you've never stepped foot in a church before, chances are you've heard some version of the Good Samaritan, right? This story is one that even that, That term, Good Samaritan, has become synonymous in our culture at large as someone who's a do-gooder, right? Someone who sees someone in a ditch. It's almost become this fable about just being a kinder, more like nicer person towards other people, that if you see someone in a ditch, you should go and help them. But the question I want to ask today is, what if Jesus was after something deeper when he told this story? What if he wanted us to see something deeper? Because if I read this story and all I do is I go away and I just try to start loving people better for my own strength, I've missed the point of what I believe Jesus is after. In fact, if I were to summarize it as we begin here this morning, I would say this, that loving my neighbor begins when I see that I can't really love my neighbor on my own. Loving my neighbor begins when I see that I can't really love my neighbor on my own. And so if you have your Bible with you, join me in Luke 10, verse 25 through 28. And let's look at this famous, familiar story with fresh eyes here this morning. So Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer, you know, that's never going to be a good thing, stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I want to pause here for a second. This is a question that Jesus got asked quite often. If you were with us last week, we briefly touched on the rich young ruler from Mark 10 who came to Jesus and he asked him the exact same question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response is this. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your, uh, uh, sorry, lost my spot there, and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So Jesus' response is the same to this lawyer that it is to the same guy last week that we talked about who asked the same question. What does the commandment say? What what does the law say? Just follow those. And the lawyer sums up correctly the law into kind of two general categories, love God and love people. Now, Jesus himself said these are the two greatest commandments, to love the Lord your God with everything and to love your neighbor as yourself. This was not new, like a new thing Jesus was introducing when he talked about loving God and loving people. If you think even about like the Ten Commandments, the first several of them all have to do with loving God, right? You shall not have any gods before me. You shall not make an idol for yourself. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You shall set aside the Sabbath and make it holy. All laws that express a love for God. And then the second part of the commandments are all love for your neighbor. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't covet. Love God. Love people. This was not a new concept. But what Jesus says here is he says, hey, lawyer, good answer. You got the right answer. Now go and flawlessly do that, and you'll have eternal life. Full stop, end of sermon, awkward stare, right? Jesus is so brilliant, because he's so simple, he doesn't complicate things, and he's so sassy in the same breath. Just flawlessly follow the law, lawyer. You're a lawyer, you know the law, just be perfect, and you'll have life. But this is a sneaky little lawyer who uses a sneaky little lawyer tricks on Jesus, and this is what it says next, verse 29. And this might be the most important statement. But he, desiring to justify himself. That's a really important line there. Desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Mr. Flawless legal expert wanted to point to the law to justify himself. So he does a lawyer trick. You know any lawyers? I used to want to be a lawyer. Uh, lawyers are, are good with words, and what they do is they, they look for loopholes. That's what they do. Sorry, sorry if there's any lawyers here. You know it's true. So he's like, what do you mean when you say, like, neighbor? Well, how would you define that? What do you actually mean? Keep in mind he's trying to justify himself in this moment. In other words, I, I think I'm pretty good at this. I, I think I'm pretty good at loving my neighbor. We do the same thing today, don't we? If you poll the average person, you know that 90% of people believe that they're more loving than the average person? 90%. There's all kinds of ways we try to justify ourselves in the area of loving our neighbor. We we say things or walk through the world with statements like, I treat people pretty well who treat me well, or love thy neighbor as thyself, but choose thy neighborhood carefully, right? I consider myself a kind person. I don't carry prejudice. I'm tolerant. I love everybody. I don't judge anybody. Can I just point out for a second that we have so lowered the bar of God's standard of love that we think, we think tolerance is a suitable substitute for a God who says, agape your enemies. In other words, be willing to lay your life down for your enemies. We have substituted cheap substitutes for a God who says, my love is self-sacrificial, it lays its life down, it seeks the well-being of others, even at my own harm, even at my own expense, and we've settled for, let's just kind of indifferently tolerate each other and we'll call that love. What Jesus is getting at here is God's standard of love is so high and so radical and so above us that in order to actually live that out, we have to start by acknowledging that we're not very good at giving that on our own. That loving my neighbor begins when I, can't, when I see I can't really love my neighbor on my own. In other words, until you see you're incapable of giving love on your own strength, you're incapable of love. Real love begins when you see that you don't have real love to offer within yourself and by yourself. So the lawyer asks this question, who is my neighbor? And you gotta love Jesus' response. He does this all the time. You ask a simple question and he breaks into a story, right? Anybody have that grandparent that's like, when I was a kid and it's always a story about everything? This is Jesus in this moment. He breaks into this story, and this was a familiar story for this lawyer. He would have heard stories like this. In fact, some even say like they believe this particular parable, if any were true, this would be one that would be actually true or feasible happening. And so Jesus breaks into the story. He says, imagine that there's a guy and he's traveling. He's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho on this Jericho road and the the sun is beating hot on his neck. And he's heading home carrying food for his family and every twist and turn he is terrified. They did not call this road the way of blood for no reason. Because on this road, every twist, every turn, every nook and cranny had the potential to be containing gangs and looters and robbers and thieves that would often jump out on innocent travelers and murder them, and if not murder them, steal everything from them and leave them for dead. And so as this guy is traveling, he rounds a bend in the road, and all of a sudden a gang jumps him, and they take everything he has, and they beat him to within an inch of his life. And he's laying there, unconscious, on the side of the road, clinging to his life. And two separate Jewish guys come walking by. The first is a priest, and the second is a Levite. Now, if you were a Jewish person hearing Jesus tell this story, this is kind of like three guys walking to a bar kind of scenario, okay? So, like, In Jewish consciousness, it would have been really familiar to have three people in order in the temple system. It would have been first priest, then Levite, then Jewish commoner. And so Jesus is using this familiar pattern, this familiar rhythm as he's telling the story. Priest, then Levite. And what happens is they walk by and they're faced with a legal dilemma. I love how Jesus does this as he's sharing the story with a lawyer. And the legal dilemma is this. Do I break the law and help the guy on the side of the road? Or do I break the law and not help the guy on the side of the road? You see, either case, to help the guy or to not help the guy, meant breaking the law that Jesus had just referenced with the lawyer a moment ago. See, to help the guy meant going towards someone who was unclean. It meant a deep violation of, in some ways, a love for God, because it meant I had to become unclean. I would be ceremonially unpure to worship or lead others in worship, and it was a big cost to myself to go help the guy. Add on top of that, if I'm a priest or a Levi, I'm most likely carrying food home for my family or loved ones or community, and if I brought my food close to that dead body or that person that appeared to be dead, and that would mean I'd have to throw away all that food because that would be considered unclean as well. There was a grave cost For these first two guys to go and help this neighbor. But on the other hand, there's also Jewish laws that require that you do help your neighbor who's in need. That you help the person who's destitute. That you help the person who's desperate on the side of the road. And so Jesus creates this brilliant legal kind of catch-22 for this lawyer. That basically says, if you want to inherit eternal life, follow the law flawlessly. And what Jesus is saying in this moment is he's saying, if you want to get into heaven, if you want to be saved, love perfectly and then God will accept you. Love God perfectly, love your neighbor perfectly. I dare you, lawyer, love perfectly. And the point of the story is he can't. The lawyer can't love perfectly perfectly. He doesn't have perfect love to, be, to give. Jesus is saying to the lawyer, and he's saying to those of us who think we're 90%, in that 90%, who think we're more loving, that you're not as loving as you think you are. That you can't even agree on what love is, much less practice it perfectly to my standards. Let's put ourselves to the test, because what Jesus does here is he gives kind of this kindergarten-level neighboring test test. Right, This this priest and this Levite, they should have kind of known what to do. It's like basic level neighboring. And I want to just put ourselves to the test here for a moment as well to see how well we do on a kind of kindergarten level neighboring test. Is that okay? (laughs) Kind of an indifferent nod. Okay, sounds good. Uh, So let's put this up here. I call this the chart of shame. (laughs) And basically what I want to ask you to do in this moment is... You live in the center house in your neighborhood, and around you are eight other neighbors. Now, some of you are thinking to yourself, well, I live in the country. Well, so do I. Okay, I have eight other neighbors around me. Just think of some houses near you. Or I live in an apartment. You have, you have eight neighbors around you. I want you to go through around each of those yellow houses and just see how many people that you can name that live around you. How many of those homes do you know the names of the people that live in them? Let's up the ante a little bit on it. Do you know something about each of their stories that you wouldn't necessarily know just from looking at them, right? So they drive a blue car, doesn't count, but like their kids' names are whatever it might be or they do this for a living. You know something about each of them that you wouldn't know unless you had a conversation with them. So if I'm honest, my number hovers around the five of eight mark. And I honestly think that probably our community, especially being in a small town, is better than most at this test. But at the same time, if you continue to go layer after layer deeper, at some point, we're going to hit a point where we realize our love fails. Our love is not perfect. Our love has limits. You know, when I think about this, and the reason I jokingly call it the chart of shame, which please know I'm not here <laughs> to shame anybody, uh, except maybe myself, but um, I'm not always very good at this either. Like, I oftentimes will walk my wife through my sermon ahead of time, and she goes, you're going to tell people how bad this, you are at this? Sure, thanks, Sam. Love you, too. But it's true. I mean, and I know we blame a lot on the pandemic, but like I feel like COVID has made me more of a recluse than I used to be. I think we've isolated ourselves in different ways that are actually killing us. And there's a lot of data and research around that. Like like I just I just wonder how are we doing when it comes to God's standard of perfect love? How are we doing? And what I want you to see and I want you to feel and I want you to know is that at some point every single one of us fail in comparison to God's standard of perfect love. That learning how to love my neighbor begins with acknowledging that I don't love my neighbor all that well on my own. And then what Jesus does is he he basically says, see lawyer how you fail the kindergarten level neighboring test? I'm going to now show you a law school level neighboring test to show you how desperately we fall short of God's standard of love and neighboring. See, keep in mind... In the lawyer's mind, okay, the priest walked by and he didn't help the person. The Levite walked by and he didn't help the person. The next person that's gonna come is the Jewish commoner because this is the order, right? Three guys walk into a bar. This is the order of things. And so he's thinking to himself, oh man, Jesus, he's a man of the people. He's gonna, you know, it's the Jewish commoner. And all of a sudden Jesus goes, and then a Samaritan came. Verse 33, you pick up the story here. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, Now, we read this, and maybe we don't bat an eye at that, but the level of vitriol and hatred between Jews and Samaritans could not be overstated. This is a hundreds and hundreds of year old conflict and tension that existed between these two groups of people. I was trying to to think of like a modern day equivalent that would carry the same shock factor as to what Jesus was getting at here. I even had to filter this through some of our staff to make sure like... People weren't gonna storm out after I use this example, but I want you to feel the level of tension that Jesus is creating here in this moment. Imagine someone like Ben Shapiro is beat up and left on the side of the road. He is Jewish, so it works, right? And he's he's left on the side of the road. And then all of a sudden Jesus says, and then Dylan Mulvaney came walking down the road. It is that stark. And if that offends you, if that makes you mad, you can email me at josh at (laughs) newlifewayland.org. Tell me all about how mad that makes you. The point that I'm trying to make is that Jews and Samaritans were so vilely opposed to each other. Jews would often refer to the Samaritans as a herd and not a nation because they didn't even view them as fully human the Samaritans would often join the Roman army just so they could legally harass and oppress their Jewish counterparts. There was an old Jewish proverb that was often used around this time that said a piece of bread given by a Samaritan is more unclean than swine's flesh. At one point, a group of Samaritans got together and they gathered up animal bones and carcasses and threw them in the Jewish temple on the holiest day of the year, Passover, just to defile their place of worship and make it uninhabitable for them to worship. That'd be the equivalent of somebody bombing a church on Easter Sunday morning. right? Some Jews destroyed the Samaritan capital a number of years before this. Like, like The tension and the vitriol that lived between these two groups is... Cannot be understated. I am just so glad we've outgrown that and we don't have tension like that anymore. And not only does Jesus choose a Samaritan to use in his story, but he makes the Samaritan the hero of his story. He flips the whole thing on his head and then he asks the question back to the lawyer in verses 36. And 37, which of these three, lawyer, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. I love how the lawyer responds. I imagine gritted teeth. He can't even say the name Samaritan. He's just like the one who showed him mercy. That dog, the animal, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus flips it and he says, go and do likewise. The Jewish lawyer wants to know who counts as his neighbor and Jesus in turn reveals the heart of God for sinners and sufferers. See, for the lawyer, God is the God of Israel and his neighbors are fellow Jews. But for Jesus, Israel's God is the God of grace for the entire world and his neighbor is anybody that has a need. Anybody with a need. Jesus takes us to law school level neighboring by telling us that our enemy is our neighbor in his community. He flips our understanding of what it means to be a neighbor on its head. And, and some of us, we come to a story and we, it's easy for us to say, well, I haven't come across a wounded terrorist lately. Next time I do, I'll, I'll take good care of him. Right? We go right to the law school level neighboring. We go right to the enemy portion. But what if Jesus is actually calling us to start with the kindergarten level neighboring? What if he's calling us to start with our actual neighbors, the people around us, the people that live in our homes, the people that we work with? Like what if we didn't see our homes as castles to retreat from the world, but as outposts for the kingdom of God in the world? What if we no longer saw our tables as just a block of wood to eat at, but as an open door to show the love of the Father to those who are not yet his sons and daughters? Because, guys, this is what the gospel has the power to do. It has the power to turn an enemy into a neighbor, into a brother and a sister. That's what the power of Jesus' table can do. If we could see into our neighbor's homes, we could see into each other's homes, we would see a whole lot of pain and hurt. We would see hiding. We would see isolation and loneliness. We would see people who are longing for the perfect love of the Father. And this is the key to the entire story. Don't miss this. Loving my neighbor begins when I see that I can't really love my neighbor on my own. You cannot come to a story like this and try to justify yourself like the lawyer did because you'll fall short every single time. If you don't believe me, go read the Sermon on the Mount. You'll fall short every single time in loving your neighbor to the standard that Jesus has set. Like If you and I are incapable of perfect love, but perfectly loving God and your neighbor is what gives you salvation, is what offers you eternal life according to Jesus, then what we need more than anything else, first and foremost, before anything else, is not to give perfect love. It's to receive perfect love. See, when we read this story, it's easy for us to put ourselves in the position of the lawyer or the priest or the Levite or the Samaritan even, but before any of those things, we're not any of those people We're the man who is beat up on the side of the road in desperate need of a neighbor to come to us and save us. That's who you are in the story before you're anybody else. In Jesus' story, we are the man desperately needing perfect love. Jesus is asking you in this story, what if your only hope was to get help from someone who not only didn't owe you help, but owed you the opposite of help? What if your only hope was to get free grace from one who had every justification to walk alongside you, trample you on the other side of the road? What if that was your only hope? Do you see it? Love is impossible apart from God. We are all the man dying on the side of the road, and Jesus came as the God man into our dangerous world as our enemy. The Bible says, in our sin, we are enemies. We are fundamentally opposed to who God is because of our sin. We are the Samaritan and the Jew dynamic when it comes to God. Every single one of us. But God, who is rich in mercy who was moved with compassion, came to us and showed us perfect love, not at the risk of his own life, but at the cost of his own life. Jesus is the great Samaritan, and his death on the cross for you and for me is evidence that he chose to be a neighbor to his enemies first, so that his enemies could become brothers and sisters. That's you, that's me. And before you have any hope of giving this type of love to somebody else, you have to first receive it on your own. You have to receive it for yourself. 1 John 4, 9 through 11 says it this way. It says, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have, what does it say there? Eternal life. It's the same question the lawyer asked through him. This is real love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. Loving my neighbor begins when I see that I don't have real love to give on my own, but it it happens when God's love has been so deeply transformative in my life that I see people with different eyes than I would otherwise. When I see people with needs or even people who have wronged me and my my first response is not to want to do them harm in return but to actually offer mercy and grace and forgiveness. Like that's what it means to learn how to love our neighbor When my life is exposed to the perfect love of Jesus, when my heart is made new in him, I have new eyes and new perspective and a new outlook on the people around me. Everything fundamentally changes. So The question I want to ask you this morning as we close is who in your life needs this perfect love? Who in your life needs this perfect love? Is it a neighbor, a neighbor whose name maybe you don't know, but you hear the yelling from across the yard? Is it a coworker who comes to work grumpy every day and doesn't necessarily scream, hey, love me, have compassion on me? Is it the spouse living in your own home, in your own bed? Who in your life needs perfect love? For some of us here, I imagine the person coming to mind is you. Some of you here have not yet experienced the perfect love of a father who saw you on the side of the road, buried in your own sin, buried in your own shame, And who came into our world at great cost to himself and lifts us out of the mud that we find ourselves in and sets our feet on solid rocks. Some of you have not experienced the healing power of the shame that you carry that can only be healed in the person of Jesus Christ. Some of you are carrying the weight of your own sin. The weight of the things that you've done, are doing, will do. And we often think of this word repentance as like a dirty word, like you gotta feel a ton more shame. All repentance means is that I see this thing in my life, it is weighing me down, I'm gonna give it to Jesus and I'm gonna turn the other way and run towards him, not towards my sin. It is a key to freedom in your life. This is perfect love, friends. And it's the love Jesus came to offer you, it's the love Jesus offers me. I'm I'm so proud of our church right now. Um, a couple weeks ago, and and I've shared this briefly. Our our uh, we lost a family member to suicide, and it was Sam's cousin, and her family lives right here in Wayland, right by the park out there. And there's not much of a church background in her family, not much faith background. And um, Sarah Ruckus, who's our care coordinator here at the church, just decided that. She was going to start a meal train. Literally, strangers from New Life Church bringing food to somebody's house who had just gone through an outrageous loss. What could go wrong? (laughs) And, And I'll just say, like, we've heard from our aunt over and over again the outrageous love of New Life Church. A love that she's not experienced before. A love that's confusing to her because it's new a love that's intriguing to her, a love that's getting her asking questions about who this Jesus person is. You don't even know her. You're showing Jesus' love to her. Let's make that the everyday order of our lives. Like there's certain kinds of love, guys, that only come and are only motivated from the heart of God. An obsession with people around you who are far from God, who are lost and hurting and drowning in their own shame and their depression, man, that's a love that does not originate with me. It's a love that can't originate with me. It's a love that can only flow through me for other people. And so when Jesus says, go and do likewise, he's not saying, pull yourself together, try harder and just be kinder. He's saying, no, see yourself on the side of the road in desperate need of perfect love so that you can become a conduit of that perfect love for other people. And so the challenge today, it's practical, guys. Who in my life needs perfect love? Take one step in relationship towards a neighbor around you. If you don't know their name, your homework this week is to find out their name. If you know their name, but you don't know their story, your homework this week is to have a conversation, learn more about who they are. Some of the most beautiful times in ministry that I've experienced is just sitting with people in their homes and hearing their stories. Oh, it just fills my heart so full. And the call of the church is for every single one of us to do these things. If you know their name and you know their story, And you haven't had an opportunity to share your Jesus story with them. Look for opportunities this week. Don't try to force it. Don't make them a project. None of that weird stuff. But just pray for God to to provide opportunities for you to share your own Jesus story with them. This calendar that we created is a great place to start for loving your neighbor well. On the bottom section here, in the red section, there's specific calls for us as a church to Do things as simple as pay it forward for the person behind us at Big Dipper. Throw a neighborhood block party. Just get people out of their shells and come on out to have some good food or share the gospel, share Jesus with somebody. To Bring a friend to church in the park service next week. Take a step to love your neighbor because when we have experienced the perfect love of God, our only natural response is to want to offer that love to those around us. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your perfect love. 1st John 4 says perfect love casts out fear. It moves old things out so that new things can move in. So God, may we be a people, may we be a church whose hearts are so full of your love. That when we see people around us who are far from you, who are lost, who are in self destructive patterns, God, may our heart bleed like yours does. God, when we're quick to make assumptions about other people's lives and other people's stories, when we don't have the full story, God, give us your eyes of compassion for people, eyes that just. Yearn to see people experience healing and wholeness in you. And God, I also pray for people here who have not yet experienced that perfect love for themselves. God, may you soften our hearts to receive what we cannot give on our own. Even pausing for a moment right here, allowing God to speak to you in your heart. God we just we just confess to you areas where we've deemed ourselves unworthy of your love where we've written ourselves off we've considered ourselves hopeless God there is nothing in our lives off limits to your redeeming and restoring and healing power nothing And so God, even as we worship here this morning, may we open our lives and our hearts and our eyes to the extravagant love that you pour out on us through your son's death on the cross and resurrection. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the good news of your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.